Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2. I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. Ephesians 2, 11 through 16. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Let's pray. Father, I am feeling really desperate to try and unpack this text. It's difficult, it's complex. And so I ask for your help. Help of the words that I use that that would be helpful, that would bring clarity and not confusion. That you would cause us now to be hungry to understand what you have ordained for Paul to write to us here. And so we ask, do your work in us, your people, to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, this passage is it just it's full of God through Paul revealing salvation history. There are things that happen and things that change. This passage is set in the context for Gentiles, which is most of us in here, to do something. And that is remember. Remember. Don't forget the context of your sin, of your lostness of your unworthiness from which Christ saved you. It's huge. And I, and I say it that way because this week on Facebook I see a quote from the pastor of the so-called largest church in the United States of America. And knowing much of his teaching, I know what he means by that and that's why it's a negative thing. When he says... Quote, quit focusing on what's wrong with you and start focusing on what is right with you. You can't be more wrong biblically. You you cannot be more wrong to what it means to love Jesus. You can't love the Savior You can't understand Christianity unless you come to grips with what is by nature terribly wrong with you. And as a believer, you're not supposed to ever forget it. As Paul addresses Gentile believers, remember this passage. And secondly, I just want to pose this question before we look at it, is why should any of us care about a passage 
like this that I just read. A passage about Jew versus Gentile. A passage about hatred as a barrier between Jews and non-Jews. A passage about Jesus coming and ripping down that wall, that barrier of enmity or hatred. A passage about Jesus abolishing the law. About Jesus creating one new man out of Jews and Gentiles. Why should we care? Let me just give you three reasons before we look at the text. First, we should care because of the principle that comes from this passage that warns us right now in today's church to be aware of the constant threat of legalism. Legalisms which in all kinds of clothing arise within the church world and pit one Christian over another because of external choices they make and make them special. What I mean is we're religious. Not not biblically moral categories, but where religious rituals are performed outwardly and are deemed, therefore, to be important for salvation. I could talk for an hour. It happens so easily. Oh, this church, you're a man, you don't wear a beard. If you do, there's something spiritually wrong with you. If you're a woman and you have a dress that doesn't go down to your ankles, these things have happened in particular groups, okay? Because there was a reason, hey, a little bit more modesty, let's just make it real simple. This will be the rule of modesty. Next generation doesn't know it. That becomes part and parcel of what it is to be a Christian. You don't go to church without a dress that goes down to the ankle. Go on and on. We can talk about Messianic Judaism. Not all of it. Some sex within it. I've talked with them. They want to persuade me as a Gentile to start practicing all the Jewish cultural festivals and laws because you'll be a more full Christian. It goes on and on. This text says, no. Secondly, we should care about this text because there are no second-class citizens in Christ. Gentiles are not second-class to born Jews. There's only one people, one body, no matter what background one is born into. And beyond Jew and Gentile, it goes for every culture, every ethnicity, and every race. There is no room for racism or religious snobbery in true Christianity. Black and white and Chinese and Japanese and Mexican and and Arab and, and Jewish are all, all of those who are being saved are in one body and equal members of one another. Thirdly, why is it important? Because he's laying out to us a part of a transition within redemptive history that we are supposed to understand and know. And it has a huge impact practically on how we understand the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. This passage is crucial because it affects how you understand obedience to God, how you understand the law of Moses for you or not, and in what way the law of Moses has been abolished. Nothing we can do about this echo, is there? Where did it come from? If you know an answer, you know, come up to us after. All right, so let's turn to the text, Ephesians chapter 2. Starting with verse 11, notice Paul begins in verse 11 with the word, therefore, meaning in this context, because of what he has already said, particularly in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, 
The, the Jews and Gentiles hear the gospel. They were on their way to hell, children of wrath, but God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together with Christ. We're saved. We're alive to Him. It is by grace you've been saved. And we are different. We are changed. We live differently. He has prepared works for you to walk in. That's what He's just said. And so now the Jew, Paul, writing to his Gentile readers in the church in Asia Minor as a whole, says to them, Therefore, you non-Jews should especially ponder the bottom of the barrel from which God has saved you. Now the flow of thought here is, there's the verb, remember, and what's the content of remembering? Look down. It's verse 12. But he doesn't immediately get there. He pauses because before he gets to what we're supposed to remember, he is already wanting to, to erect the reality of the hatred or enmity or hostility that exists between Jew and Gentile. And particularly what he says here has to do with the mentality in the first century of a Jew to the Gentiles. When he writes in verse 11, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision, literally that's the word in Greek, foreskins, called, it's derogatory, foreskins by what is called the circumcision, Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. So Paul is saying, you Gentiles, you were seen as excluded from the social group, the religious group of quote-unquote God's people. That's how you were viewed by the Jews. And then he gets to the content. That was the, we're going to see it in a minute, the hostility going on between the two people groups in the world. Jews and then everybody else. If you don't know, when we say Gentiles, it means nations. It's a word for the Jews to refer to everybody who is not a Jew around through all the nations of the world. So when he gets to verse 12, here it is. Remember what? Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There's five things there. The first is the most important. You were without Christ. You see, Paul has already made it very clear in chapter 1 that all spiritual blessings come one way. Through Christ. Through those who are in Christ. And he makes it clear. Here, you Gentile readers, there was a time you were not in Christ. You were outside of Christ. Secondly, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, meaning from the cultural Jewish life of the Jews. Whether in Palestine or in the Diaspora, you were outside. Jews are a separated people. God made sure of that. He gave them separating laws that would make them distinct in the world. And it's worked really well, even to today, they were outside of God's people. Thirdly, and you were strangers to the covenants of promise. There is one true God. And that one true God chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the twelve tribes. Israel is special because God chose them. He made covenants with them. 
and not with the Greeks or the Chinese. He made covenants with them. They're in the Scripture. He says you were outside of God's covenant people, the Jews. And then the last two. But remember, he's writing to pagans, pagan worshipers. They worshiped, they had religion, they had gods, they were all Percy Jacksons. How many people go, you got that, Serge? I had to listen to that book on our drive. One of them. That's what they did. They had gods. But Paul says, you were without hope and without God in this world. Okay, there's five things and that's some really bad stuff. And there are millions of people, close family members of each of us, friends we grew up with, or in our neighborhood, and millions upon millions of people in the world, that that is the state that they are in this very moment, without hope, without Christ, without God, and they are oblivious to it. As these original readers were. Until the Gospel came, and with the hearing, God called them. And they were transformed. And they were put in Christ. They had hope. And they had God on their side. And not against them. And that is Paul's main point of the passage. So I want to go up in a helicopter and just see what we just saw. We looked at verses 11 and 12. So what he is saying with verses 11 and 12 is this. Even though this is true about you Gentiles, you were this, you were in these five states, nevertheless, verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, you have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ means by the one man's sacrificial substitution where He poured out His life unto death as a penalty for your sins, Gentiles. That's what brought you near. That's what brought you in to union and covenant as a Gentile with Jews who are also being saved by Jesus. That's his point. He doesn't make another point. What he does now in verses 14 to 16 is he restates that. He restates even though this is true, nevertheless you've been brought near. Okay, let me restate this, Paul saying, more specifically and in detail how it is that Gentiles, dirty, unclean Gentiles, have been brought into God's saving covenant with saved Jews. That's what he does. So we just pose it this way. Okay, Paul, I, I heard you so far. Help me. How did the blood of Jesus, how did the death of Jesus bring us Gentiles near to God, Paul? His answer is verse 14. First, He, Christ, is our, that's Paul writing, a Jew, our Jews and your, you, Gentiles, our peace. Christ is our peace. That's how. Okay. Help me more, Paul. How is Jesus our peace that brings Gentiles into unison with saved Jews and they're saved together in one? How, Paul, does that work? His answer is right there in verse 14. 
Because Jesus has become our peace by being the one, quote, who has made both, Jew and Gentile, both one. And He, Jesus, has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of enmity, hatred, or hostility of Jew to Gentile. Jesus, in His death, tore down that wall. That's His answer. You see, for, for unbelieving Jews, I don't mean non-religious. I don't mean Jews that say, I'm an atheist. I'm talking about in the first century. If you don't have a picture of what I'm saying, go home and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and listen to Jesus deal with mainly Pharisees. He didn't have a high opinion of them. He thought their father was the devil. He, he thought they were utter unbelievers, many of the people he talked to, even though they were religious. Okay? So, in the first century, unbelieving Jews, non, let me say it this way, non-born again Jews, like Paul himself, as a Pharisee, before he was converted to Christ, hated Gentiles. Looked down upon Gentiles as inferior and they're special. The Apostle Paul, before he came to Christ, felt far superior to non-Jews by virtue of his birth and of his religious practice of cultural distinctives of Judaism. There was a huge, hostile wall barrier between Jew and Gentile. Huge. See, that's why months, maybe even a year after Jesus rose from the dead, God gives the Apostle Peter a vision. And in the vision, he essentially says, Peter, I want you to go into a Gentile's house and preach to him. And he said, you are out of your mind, God. I've never been into a Gentile's house. And I'm not about to. Well, God convinced him. And he did. And then he got back to Jerusalem. And there were thousands of Jesus-believing Jews who were angry that Peter went into a non-Jewish house. Okay? There was what Paul's talking about in his context, this huge first century barrier. And he says, Jesus brought Jew and Gentile together by destroying the wall that separated them. Literally, here's my literal translation. He, Jesus, in His flesh, in His death, He tore down in His flesh the middle wall. And then Paul used another word. You can translate something like this. The fence. And then He uses another word. The enmity. He tore it down. Jesus' blood, His death, is what ripped down that wall of division, hatred, and enmity. Did it by His substitutionary, bloody sacrifice. Okay, but... Okay, help me more, Paul. Help me more. How? What wall did He rip down? He ripped down the wall of the law of Moses. The, the, so that I make sure I, sometimes that's right. Okay. And young people, if you don't know, when we talk about the law of Moses in your Bible, you open it up, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the books of Moses. That is called the law. In Hebrew, the Torah. 
It's the law. This is what they're referring to. Where you get some story, you do get Adam and Eve, but you get the law given through Moses, starting with Exodus on what, what to do and not to do. God gives laws. Okay. He ripped that law down. The law had many separating decrees within it that created the enmity between Jew and non-Jew. And in the context of many first century Jews, it created a sense of superiority looking down at dirty, stinking, unclean Gentiles. That's what the cross of Jesus tore down. See, in verse 15, look at it. Paul tells us, how? How is it that Jesus tore down this wall of enmity between Jew and Gentile? Particularly between saved Jew in Jesus and saved Gentile. How did Jesus tear it down? The answer is verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself, in himself Christ, one new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile. And so, making peace. That's how. He, that's how he ripped down the wall of enmity, by abolishing the law of commandments in ordinances. The word abolished, it means he made ineffective, or powerless, or it means to nullify. He nullified it. Paul says Jesus' death nullified the law of Moses, making it no longer binding. Just, I'm not done, but that, that seems to be what the text says so far. What does that mean? If that's true, what does it mean? See, in the law, in the five books of Moses, that's where we get a bunch of commandments to the Jews, like circumcise your boys on the eighth day of their life. Do not eat shellfish. Do not eat birds of prey like the Gentiles. And don't eat bacon. It's right there. In, those are commandments in Moses. That's what you get in the law. Okay? But, the same law of Moses also commands, do not murder. Love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do not commit adultery. Okay. So, is Paul saying, Gentile, Jew, you've come to faith in Jesus. Guess what? Because you're a Christian, you are now free to go ahead and commit adultery. To go ahead and murder. To not love God. To steal. Is that what he's saying? Okay. When you read all of Paul's letters, his 13 letters in the New Testament, you know Paul doesn't believe that. Okay. So again, what does he mean? What is he saying? Alright, I mean, I'm going to offer to you first an interpretation of many, and, and in particular, one of the greats of Christian history, John Calvin, back in the 1500s, and many since, this is how they deal with the text. They went, see, here's the text. He, Jesus, he, he ripped 
down. He, you just you know, think about you know the Berlin Wall. He just ripped it down by his death. He ripped down what? What's the object of it? It is the word law. And then he modifies it with law of commandments in decrees. Do this or don't do that. Ordinances. And so Calvin and many other interpreters since say those, that phrase, of the commandments expressed in ordinances, is Paul's way of referring to a limited part of the law of Moses. Meaning the ceremonial laws. Meaning the particular Jewish cultural distinctives. Sabbath keeping or circumcision and dietary kosher laws and washings and temple sacrifices, etc. So in other words, what they are arguing is what Jesus abolished is the particular Jewish parts of the law that created the wall of division and enmity or separation between Jews and everyone else. But the moral law, love God with all your heart, love your neighbor, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, they remain. Jesus didn't get rid of morality. That's what they're arguing. And and those who hold this view appeal, for instance, to Paul himself in one sentence making a distinction between ceremonial or cultural, which are not in them of themselves moral, in other words, a bad thing done to another human being or to God, Okay, in the same sentence, abolishing one and upholding the other. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 7.19, Paul writes, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision. Okay, that's Moses' law. And he says it's not worth a hill of beans. Well, he's not done with his sentence. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for, for anything. But what counts for everything, Corinthian Gentile church, is keeping the commandments of God. Okay. So let me just say, this is where it's, if that was hard, oh, we're in trouble. Because this is where it gets difficult. That position, I think there's a, there's, there's, it's a true position biblically. There is a way in which the cultural Jewish ceremonial laws are abolished and in a way where do not murder is not abolished. Okay, that's true. And there's biblical New Testament evidence for that. But in this passage, I think... Paul means something more than that. That there is an an approach to Moses, whether it's circumcision, kosher diet, or do not murder, or do not commit adultery, that Jesus went after and just nailed them. That he's saying, it's down. That wall of division that had been created in redemptive history, I tore down. Now, let me try to explain what I mean. I think he has in mind the whole law of Moses that God gave to the Jews who were predominantly unregenerated. Not born again. Not saved. Had no heart for God. They were unbelieving even in their religiosity. They were self-righteous people. And they turned Moses, the law, into a dividing wall of separation. They created a religion 
of legalism. Do this. Don't do that in order that you will make yourself special to God. Unlike those non-law-keeping, dirty Gentiles. So, what Paul, I think, here is saying is it it's that law, in other words, that covenant that the one true God through Moses, the law covenant made with His people Israel, okay, that and what it's produced since Jesus has now come, that is over. It's abolished. It's done. Jesus tore it down. In other words, with Jesus' coming, His life, His sacrificial death, His resurrection, His ascension, and then the apostles and the early Christians and us, we go with the Gospel and we preach the message, the good news of Jesus Christ. As that is happening, what Paul means is the old covenant consisting of natural, physical, cultural Jews who were predominantly not born again, in other words, Israel, doing their religion, the pharisaical, prideful, works, righteousness attitude, that with the Gospel of Jesus is over. And the New Covenant, because the New Covenant is an Old Testament word, and New Testament word, New with Ezekiel and Jeremiah talking and prophesying. There's going to be a new covenant. Not like the old where I gave you the law and you hated my guts and wouldn't keep it. I'm going to make a new covenant where I'm going to write my moral law on your hearts. By new birth. By the indwelling of the Spirit. With Christ's death, resurrection, and the Gospel going forth. The new covenant is here. The wall of division between legalism of the Jews thinking they're special over Gentiles is over. Christ abolished the separating, pride-producing legalism of doing law, doing commands in order to get saved, in order to be special with God. Hang on. Okay, let, me, let me try to feel that for you. Okay. I'm gonna, I want you to turn, if you would, to Philippians 3 for a moment. You see, I'm just going to let Paul use himself as the illustration of this Jew with barriers against Gentiles in his mentality to the law of Moses that Jesus came and ripped down in his life. In chapter 3 of Philippians... Starting with verse 4, Paul writes, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more so. Now listen to him. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, my theological sect in approach to Moses, I was a Pharisee. As to how serious I was in my religion, my zeal, I'll tell you, I was a persecutor of the church. Talk about enmity. As to righteousness, under the law. I, Paul, was blameless. Mean he didn't need a Savior? Does anybody in here think that's what he means? He's going to bust hell wide open. He wasn't righteous before God. He's talking about his mentality. Blameless. And then he says, but... 
that was me, Paul. But whatever gain I had, something happened. Conversion happened. And what did he do? I counted as loss. All of that approach to God under the law like that, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value or worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. It is for His sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as garbage in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law that he thought he was blameless about. I chucked it. Why? But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God given to me as a gift, that depends on faith in Christ. That was Paul. And this is so I'm just want to, this is what I think Paul is saying. It's that kind of arrogant, dividing wall of hostility and hatred that Jesus tore down. Jesus did it by coming and truly fulfilling the law in perfect humanity, in perfect righteousness, and suffering, fulfilling the sacrificial, tabernacle, priesthood, imagery that was all pointing to Christ on the cross where God propitiated sins. And He fulfilled it and abolished that old law covenant. It did its job. Till it's time. So Paul, in our text in Ephesians, says, Christ, by His blood, abolished that law. Now I'm going to go to one more text. Now I want you to turn there, because I'm going to read a big portion. 2 Corinthians 3. And Paul uses three times here the same word that is translated in your ESV as abolished. Abolished the law. That verb abolished uses it three times here. And we'll see it. Let me just start with verse 7 for a moment. Now if the ministry of death... Now notice Paul's term here. What he's... He's referring to the law given under Moses in the wilderness. And he calls it here the ministry of death. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone, see the Ten Commandments there, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face when he came down the mountain, and his face is shining. He was with God. Why? They couldn't gaze at his face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. That's the first use. So the glory on Moses' face was going to come. It's going to be nullified. It's going to stop. That's what he says so far. It's not going to last forever. But put a veil of your face. We can't take it, Moses. He says, he says if that's true, verse 8, will not... Now notice his term... Will not the ministry of the Spirit... I'm going to contend that Paul clearly means, in verse 7, the ministry of death means they had his law without the Holy Spirit in them. That's what it means. They're not regenerated. And then when he says in verse 8, but the ministry of the Spirit means they have the Spirit. He's referring to us Christians at this point. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of death, well, he didn't say death here, he called it 
the ministry of condemnation. That's what Moses did, condemned him. Didn't save him. So, so for if there was glory on Moses' face in the ministry of condemnation, then the ministry of the Spirit, except he, he, he changed it again. He, he said here, instead of ministry of Spirit, the ministry of righteousness, which we understand is the Gospel, Christ our righteousness. The ministry of righteousness must far exceed that old law with a dead heart. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all under Moses in the wilderness because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end, there's the word again, abolished, but it's in the passive here, so it is being brought to an end, that means the law here, the law under Moses or the law of condemnation. If what was being brought to an end, the law of condemnation or the law of death, if that came with glory, much more will what is permanent indwelling by the Holy Spirit in Christ's righteousness. It's permanent. Will it have glory? Now, since we Christians, Jew and Gentile, have such a hope, we are very bold. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was coming to an end, being abolished. But their minds... Now watch it. Here's his interpretation about the ministry of death, ministry of condemnation. They had God's holy law, but what? Their minds were hardened. And then he brings it up today in the first century in the 50s. For to this very day when they, my fellow Jews, read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is the veil taken away. And yes, to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when a person turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So now, see, the Lord Jesus is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled faces, believers, are beholding the glory of the Lord. And we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So what I'm saying is, in Christ, the glory of the written law of Moses to spiritually dead, veils over their hearts, hardened minds, that dispensation, that era, is over. With the inauguration of the new covenant, and thus the message, the good news of Jesus Christ, going forth to Jews and to Gentiles, the separating laws within Moses that distinguish Jews from other people fall away as demands upon God's people. Jesus abolished the law. Not just in the sense of, oh, just those separating laws. He abolished the law in the sense it is not a law to you of condemnation. The law of Moses. Don't murder. Love your neighbor. Don't commit adultery. Is not a law that hangs over Gentile or Jewish Christians that says, here's a threat of condemnation to you. 
that doesn't exist anymore in Jesus. He abolished it because He is your righteousness. We are not under the law of Moses in that sense. We're under the law of Christ by the Holy Spirit. But right and wrong still exist, don't they? Walking up behind an innocent person walking down the street and shooting them in the head with a gun is still wrong in God's eyes, isn't it? Okay. So the, that's called moral or morality. The moral law, which much is expressed in the books of Moses. And so no wonder Paul, who says Christ, brought down, destroyed the law of Moses in the way it worked with the Jews in that dispensation. No wonder throughout his letters he appeals to the law of Moses as the instruction book to Jew and Gentile Christians. Not as the way to get right with God, but as the expression of walking by the Spirit with God. Walk by the Spirit. You will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Or another way to say it is, walk by the Spirit and you won't be breaking the Ten Commandments. Okay. That's why Paul feels so free to use Moses, the law of Moses, as the ethical instruction book throughout his writings. Like when he says in Galatians 5, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Well, who cares, Paul? We don't care about the law. Well, Paul does. In a different way, he cares about it. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or in 1 Corinthians 5, God judges the outsider. What's the matter with you, church? And then he quotes the law of Moses. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul, we're not under law. Of course we're not under law. In the way Paul means it. Not under law at all in order to get right with God. Jesus is our only righteousness that we hope in. We are filled with the Spirit. We are saved, Christian. And now, look what Moses says. Obey God's law here. It's wisdom. If you trust Him. Or 1 Corinthians 9, 8-9, Paul says... Do I say these things on human authority, church in Corinth? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen only that God is concerned? And he goes on and on, using Moses as the instruction book. Or 1 Corinthians 10, you know where he's got that whole large parry, if you can see it here. There's no video, you can't see it. And he goes and instructs what was happening while Moses was alive in the wilderness of the rebellion again and again of his people and God's judgment coming on them, right? And then Paul says, now these things happened to them in the law of Moses as an example. But they were written down for our instruction, Jews and Gentiles being saved in Jesus. They are written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Oh, or one more. Paul writes in, in Romans 13, 8-10. Church, predominantly Gentile church in Rome, owe no one anything except to love each other. Because the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For, let me tell you what I mean. The commandments, now notice there are no ceremonial commandments listed here, or distinctly Jewish, but universal moral commandments. For the commandments, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay. Jesus, by His blood, abolished this historical, temporal use of the law in human history, redemptive history, which was there to separate the Jews from Gentiles, and at the same time, Paul argues in Romans, condemn them all, Jew and Gentile. It was there for it and did its purpose. Jesus removed the sinful legalism of dead souls thinking they could earn or deserve salvation by anything they do. He did this according to our text. And we're going to come back as the text continues on next time. But He did this by creating one new spiritual man made up of Jews and Gentiles, males and females. All of them who are born again and indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. God's moral law reigns. Right and wrong is, should be extremely important to every born-again, blood-bought, Christ-righteousness, justified Christian on planet Earth. His moral law reigns. But His moral law to those who are truly born again, is no longer a threat of punishment. It's no longer a threat of condemnation over anybody who is in Christ. In that sense, the law of Moses has been abolished. And you know Paul very well how he says it, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus came into you and set you free from the law of sin and death. Law of sin and death. And so Paul writes in our text, For He, Christ Himself, is our peace. The One who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile, and thus making peace. And that He might reconcile us, Jew and Gentile, both to God in one body, through the cross, and thereby killing the hostility. Just make sure that you hear this. Paul's made it very clear. But right there. We both need to be reconciled. Both religious Jew and Gentile. All need to be reconciled to God through the blood of Christ. Jews who have the law need to be reconciled. Gentiles who don't have the law of Moses but have the law written somehow on their conscience need to be reconciled. Both need to be saved by Christ. And in Christ, we are new creatures united together with no walls of separation based on birth, right? Religious background, right? Skin color, 
or any other stupid thing. And so as I close, let me just say the word of the Lord to us in this text is first and foremost, remember. Don't ever forget your past while you're walking down here. I promise you, for every believer in the resurrection, you'll never forget the sin from which you have been saved. The words, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world will not be said by you with no meaning, ever. And don't listen to voices that bark through so-called churches today that you should look more to yourself and your self-esteem than you should look to the Savior and the reality of the future horrific wrath that laid up for you that He has redeemed you from. Remember draws our thoughts back to the truth that there was nothing in us that moved God to say, they are pretty special. I'm going to go save her or him. We were, as Paul says in chapter 2, dead in our sin. But God, remember that mercy. You see, this remembering is meant to deepen our love for Jesus, the Savior. Remember what Jesus said? Sitting at the table in Simon the Pharisee's house and the prostitute comes in crying on Jesus' feet as he reclined, wiping his feet with her hair. And Jesus praises her for it. Of course, Simon and the others are really uncomfortable. And he, he makes the statement, he or she who is forgiven much loves much. So don't worry about Simon. I mean, you're not that bad of a sinner, so that's why you don't love me very much. That's not his point. His point is, Simon is clueless about his sin. And this woman was in touch with it. So when we focus on the mirror of the Bible to show us what was and is wrong with us, we will love Him. We will hear the truth all the more clearly. Praise God for it. Use your remaining sin as a stepping stone for worship daily in your life. And let me just say this. According to this text, if you are a legalist or to any extent that you are a legalist, putting up barriers between you and other persons who are in Christ of external performances or things that you wouldn't do but they do and therefore if I wouldn't do it, it has to be part and parcel of the essence of Christianity. How could they do that? I just want to plead with you to stop it. There is no place for I am special because I do this or I don't to do that. There are no rules. There are no laws in order to get or remain right with God. The blood of Jesus alone is what ripped down that deceptive mentality of legalism. And then the last thing. In the first century, this was the cry within the visible church with many. But I'm a Jew. And you're saying that non-Jew without all the privileges that are very special and I take pride in, you're going to say he can be saved by Jesus and remain a Gentile? without converting to Judaism, becoming like us? Yes. And if that ever remains or comes about in one degree or another, stop it. It comes about in all kinds of ways through human history. 
but I'm an Arab. And you're telling me I got a fellowship with a dirty Jew, but I'm white. Come on. Let's just keep things separate because she's black. But I'm a Mexican. She's a Cuban. And we can go on and on. There is zero place for racial, ethnic, or cultural superiority complexes in the body of Christ. At the cross, Jesus destroyed these stupid, wicked, evil barriers. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Son. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your salvation. For tearing down the walls of partition, of enmity, of arrogant legalism and superiority. And Lord Jesus, it is to that central reality in our lives as Your people that we turn again now in Holy Communion. Where we say, yes, in Your flesh, You tore down the wall. In Your blood poured out. And we will again hold together and pray over this. And eat of Your body and drink of Your blood. Remembering, remembering Your death for our salvation. To the glory of Your holy name. Amen.